Across the country right now, many would-be lawyers are just now getting the results of one of the most important tests they'll ever take in their lives, the bar exam. A timed test, including multiple choice and essay questions pulled from every academic corner of the law. The test itself is administered over two, sometimes three, marathon days. Alexis Alzada recently graduated from Emory Law School and took the Georgia bar exam last July and should be getting the results of that exam any day now. Alexis did well in law school. In fact, she already has a job lined up with a criminal defense firm. But despite that, she says she's not confident at all about how she did on the bar exam. Not at all, actually. I would, be, I would think to myself, you know, statistically, how can I not pass the bar? I've done so well in law school, like top of my class. I've worked really hard. I've studied at least half of these subjects in depth in actual classes, not just for two months on Barbary. So I should know these things and I should be fully prepared to take the bar and and pass it with flying colors. But going into the bar exam, I mean, I was barely passing. So I truly have no idea whether or not I pass. And that in itself makes no sense to me because I did great in law school, you know? Like most law school grads, Alexis spent thousands of dollars on a bar prep course from Barbary. The general rule of thumb, according to the company, is that it takes about two months of full-time study to pass the bar exam. But rather than feel reassured by this process, Alexis said she felt the opposite. So, well, I took like the baseline test to get started. And I I don't remember the score. I probably did horrible, but I thought to myself, that's fine. I'm at this baseline mark and I'll do my Barbary course and I will, you know, get better as time goes on. About midway through the course, they had us do a practice test. And that practice test, I did really bad on, like worse than the average, I would say. And I freaked out and I ended up buying another, you know, $400 course just because I was like so freaked out that I'm like, oh oh my God, it's really in the realm of possibilities that I might fail the bar. Like my progress was not um, astronomical and it certainly was not, you know, over a thousand dollars worth. It was at this point that Alexis came up against a cold, hard truth about the bar exam, something that many lawyers know but just kind of choose to ignore, that the test itself has almost nothing to do with the real-world practice of law. In fact, in most cases, it's the exact opposite of how lawyers work. So I remember getting to a point in my studying where I realized, you know, I thought I would be good at criminal law because I've done it. But I'm sitting there thinking, when have I ever or will I ever need to tell you the exact elements and mental state required for larceny, for example, instead of just being able to look it up like a real practitioner does every single day and then apply the facts from there. I mean, that is when I realized, like, this is not making me an attorney. I don't know what this is doing. To me, that's not what attorneys do. They don't just regurgitate memorized elements. Except for a few exceptions, the bar exam is the last barrier every would-be lawyer must surmount in order to practice law. And it all comes after undergraduate education plus 
three years of law school, literally thousands of hours and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent, all riding on the results of this one test. That's a lot of physical and emotional investment wrapped up in a test that many say doesn't even accomplish what it's supposed to do. And so that begs the question, why even have it? My name is Adam Allington, and you're listening to Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group about big ideas and questions in the legal profession. So there is no shortage of opinions when it comes to the bar exam. On the one hand, there are plenty of traditionalists who feel that the test provides a critical check to make sure new lawyers and the law schools that trained them are up to snuff. Others acknowledge that, yes, while there are some problematic aspects of the bar, it's nothing that can't be fixed through a few reforms. And then there are those who think that the bar is simply beyond saving and should be scrapped altogether. One person who I think it's safe to say falls into the latter category is Joe Patrice. Joe, for those who don't know you, can you just tell people who you are and what you do for a living? I'm senior editor at Above the Law, where I mostly make jokes at big law and law school's expense. So, Joe, unlike me, you actually went to law school and took the bar exam. And in recent years, you've criticized the test as being completely out of step with the modern practice of law. Can you just walk me through your thinking? Yeah, I think the... The, the test has always had some problems. I feel like it's always been somewhat horribly anachronistic. Uh, the practice of law is no longer, for at least most folks, a generalist experience. It's a lot of specialization. So why is it a tax lawyer has to know a bunch about criminal procedure? There's not a lot of reason for it to be the way it is. That said, we've all generally accepted it largely because people tend to pass and they feel like it's a horrible experience, but they move on and don't think about it again. The COVID situation forced a bunch of folks into uncomfortable places, taking exams remotely with platforms that crashed, taking it in person during the middle of lockdowns in some mostly Southern states. Uh, These events put stress on the people taking the test that forced them to, for the first time in a while, say out loud what has been boiling under the surface for a long time, this doesn't make any sense. Because now all of a sudden, folks who might have otherwise passed, the added stress means they didn't, and they got madder about it. And it's given us an opportunity to really think, why is it we do it this way? Well, I think the bar exam posits itself as kind of a minimum competency test. You know, it's there to protect the public from lawyers who don't know what they're doing. But as you and others have pointed out, in reality, the bar doesn't test minimum competency at all. Could you expand on that? Why isn't the bar a measure of one's legal chops, so to speak? So a good minimum competency test is like a driver's exam, right? There's a certain number of points you have to hit. Uh preferably none of those being other cars, and then you get a driver's license. At the end of that simple objective test, maybe everyone in a day passes that test. Good for them. Maybe everyone in the day fails that test. Good for them. That's not how bar exams are set up. Bar exams are set up with an eye toward ensuring that a certain percentage within a range pass every time and a certain number fail every time just because that's what the bar examiners want to see. They want to see and target a number of, hey, maybe around 20% of the people fail at this time. 
that's not a good way of running a minimum competency test. That's actually you saying, I've decided I'm going to justify my own existence as a bar examiner test. Minimum competency would say, this is the score, you get the score, you move on. Uh, and that's just not how these are set up or balanced as tests. In a recent piece you wrote for Above the Law, you said the pandemic has served as a stress test on the rusted hull of the bar exam. So what do you mean by that? What kind of data or information has the pandemic provided that we otherwise wouldn't have access to? Well, I think one of the best pieces of information I think we got from it was what happened in Indiana, who tried to do an online exam. It collapsed on them. And at the last minute, they just said, here's some essay questions, write an email back to us with your answers. Uh, it was obviously a last-ditch desperation effort, but in many ways, to me, it signaled what could be. You had an opportunity where it was open book because lawyers, the practice of law is open book. It allowed people to spend time researching and developing an answer, which is you know, what you actually think the minimum competency of a lawyer is to do. So even though it was kind of an accident, it was a happy accident, I thought, because Indiana felt comfortable with the results, and it struck me, this is probably what, if we have to have a test, what it should probably look like. Something that is skills-based gives a gives somebody a day, like they would get as a real lawyer, to answer a complex legal question, marshalling the research skills that they have. So there are some alternative ways of credentialing new lawyers that don't involve passing a test. One option is what's referred to as diploma privilege, basically, that if you've gone to law school and taken the required number of classes and credits and graduate in good standing, then that's enough. Boom, you're a lawyer. And this is actually the way lawyers used to be credentialed until the American Bar Association began requiring exams in the 1920s. In fact, one state, Wisconsin, still does it this way. So if law students graduating from one of Wisconsin's two law schools want to practice in-state, they don't have to take the bar exam. So when COVID threw a monkey wrench into in-person testing, I think it was something like five jurisdictions that decided to allow students to claim diploma privilege. The Louisiana Supreme Court waives the bar exam due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, that's uh, something that hasn't happened since the Korean War nearly 70 years ago. Utah, Oregon, Washington, yeah. So does this experiment teach us anything or maybe give some inertia to the people who want to see diploma privilege in more states than just Wisconsin? Yeah, and I think it's it's great to make the point that we talk about this like it's an experiment, but we've actually had this experiment running for 100 years in Wisconsin. What happens there, though, I think that the emergency diploma privilege was a emergency measure and can't necessarily be sustained just because. However, I think it is the right answer long term. The issue with Wisconsin is because they're diploma privilege, they have spent the time and energy to develop a curriculum that if people have gone through the law schools and had iterative testing over the course of years from qualified personnel and gotten their diploma, that means they're good enough. We don't have that necessarily in every law school in the country, but that's, I think, what the goal should be, as opposed to having a situation where people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and then take a test that guarantees that some percentage of them are going to fail. We instead crack down on law schools and ensure that all the law schools are teaching what needs to be done such that at the end of three, if we're going to continue doing three years, we trust that people with that diploma are competent. But just to play devil's advocate, 
One thing the pandemic did show was that in some states, remote testing was an outright fiasco. And the pass rates that are coming out now kind of bear that out. So do you think the COVID experiment maybe supports returning to the status quo in some cases? Yeah, I think I, I think the lesson of COVID was that in most jurisdictions, the remote testing option was a square peg round hole incidence. You can't run a closed book 90-minute session test with a computer saying every time you fidget, you cheated. Uh, California, when they first did this, the software flagged one-third of all test takers as cheaters. That is obviously absurd. And it was because people shift in their seat, and it was flagging that. People were black and brown folks. It was tagging that as a cheating thing, too, because the facial recognition software wouldn't notice who they were because there's long-standing issues with facial recognition software and black and brown folks. So that was happening. So the kind of test that says we have to monitor that you don't look at anything outside of our universe is impossible in a remote world. That said, I also, going full circle to, I said that I thought that the Indiana exam was a good example. Uh, That one, because they couldn't get any proctoring to work, they just asked questions that were open-ended research questions. And that test, I think, worked perfectly fine remote because it understood that in a remote world, you can't try to run the test the way we have been running it in person. So are there any jurisdictions that you think might change going forward? Is there any momentum that you would point to? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it. I think once we get an opportunity to go back in person, every state's going to try to go back in person unless there's momentum to move towards a real long-standing diploma privilege, which obviously some jurisdictions might consider. I think everyone's going to go back to in person. And I feel part of that is for good reasons that the remote experiment didn't work and mostly for bad reasons, which is Bar examiners feel like that was their fiefdom. Uh, They had control there. They liked it. That was their system, and they're going to go back to it. Uh, That's not that kind of tradition is not a good reason to do anything. But unfortunately, in a lot of these places, that is what controls. Uh, People with small empires tend to uh, hold on to them tighter. Joe Patrice is a senior editor at Above the Law. He's also co-host of the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. Joe, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thanks for having me. However problematic or imperfect the bar exam may be, there are still plenty of people who say it's the best tool we have to maintain standards and weed out lawyers who are unfit for practice. Roger Schechter is on the faculty at George Washington University Law School, where he teaches mainly in the areas of intellectual property and tort law. Professor Schechter, a few months back, you wrote an opinion piece for Bloomberg Law, arguing that for all its faults, the bar exam still the best way to ensure would-be attorneys have the fundamental skills necessary to practice law. Of course, the standard response to that line of thinking is, how does a marathon two-day exam where students have about a minute and 45 seconds per question for multiple choice and 30 minutes for essays prove one way or another whether one is competent to practice law? As far as the the question of not testing what lawyers need to know, the exam is clearly heavily skewed towards knowledge of substantive legal doctrine. 
lawyers don't need to memorize vast quantities of legal doctrine in their day-to-day -day work. Lawyers use books. So in that sense, the critique has some merit. But you can't use those books. You can't research a legal problem effectively and assist your client effectively unless you have a framework to begin the process of legal research. Now, when I was a law student, I never took a course in bankruptcy. When I was in practice, before I became a law professor, I was handed a bankruptcy case. I freaked out. I did not know what I was doing. Even the most basic terminology was alien to me. But even if I don't know the answer, I have a context that will enable me to find the answer. So I think a test of substantive knowledge is important. I think that the test should be fixed. And I think we should see more emphasis on skills testing as well. Um, and I think there are lots of ways we could do that. But I think we have to test people on their basic knowledge of substance. I just feel that that's part of the baggage that a lawyer should have. What about the other common criticism that the bar exam disadvantages minorities and people of color precisely at a time when the industry is trying to do everything it can to increase diversity? On the equity or diversity point, it is troubling that members of historically disadvantaged groups underperform on the bar exam. But I don't think that's a justification for doing away with the exam. I think that we owe it to those individuals to figure out why they're underperforming. The same disparity is often noted in academic performance within law schools. At many schools, if you look at the membership of the Law Review, which is an academic journal but is edited by students, and uh, those students are selected based on performance, uh, students of color are underrepresented on the Law Review. Uh, now, this is deeply troubling, but I don't think the answer is to do away with the Law Review. In addition to screening out unqualified attorneys, in your article, you wrote that the bar exam also provides a check against law schools. What did you mean by that? As the famous saying goes, I'm glad you asked. The conversation about the bar exam almost always focuses on the candidates, on the individuals who've just graduated. I want to change the focus and make an argument that a large point of the bar exam is actually to keep the law schools honest. Faculty members are, and I speak from inside the belly of the beast, a very self-indulgent group of people. Left to their own devices, faculty members will teach the things that they are interested in. They will teach the things that represent their own idiosyncratic research interests. And even in basic courses, like a course on contract law, they will teach their pet theories. One of the few things that keeps them honest, is the fact that their students have to be prepared for a bar exam. I take your point. Clearly, it doesn't look good for law schools if their students aren't passing the bar. But there's also a counterpoint that for most schools, certainly the top-ranked ones, bar pass rates don't really factor into their rankings anyway. And, you know, some might say they're more than happy to take students' tuition money and wish them good luck with the bar on their way out the door. But in terms of other ideas about professional licensure, as I'm sure you're aware, there are many people who think that the successful completion of three years of law schools should be proof enough of one's competency to practice law. Where do you come down on the diploma privilege question? The risk that I see with the universal diploma privilege is that we would actually have less focused instruction on the bread and butter topics that people need. Now, 
for individuals who are lucky enough to get these jobs at the big law firms that pay $200,000 fresh out of law school, that may not be a problem. They will have mentors and they will learn in the trenches how to practice the kind of law that they're expected to do with those firms. But the vast majority of law graduates don't wind up at those firms. The vast majority wind up in small firms or sole practice. So I think that there is a serious function that the bar exam performs in just keeping the law schools honest. Medical school is certainly as rigorous as law school. Medical school actually mandates clinical experience for 100% of the students. Indeed, the third and fourth year of medical school is almost all patient contact. We certainly don't do that in a law school. We keep our students trapped in a classroom. Medical students then go off and do a three-year residence. You would think after all of that that we would just hand them a medical license, but we don't. We make them take a test. And it just seems to me that in the legal profession, as in the medical profession, there's a third group of people that we need to keep our eye on. Yes, we have to focus on the bar candidates and what's good and humane and appropriate for them. We have to focus on the law faculties and the law deans, but you know who else we have to focus on? The clients. The bar exam is fundamentally a client protection measure. And so it may be that the vast majority of people who are in their JD are well prepared to step into a practice environment, but there are some people who skate through how they manage to do it, unclear to me, but I've seen it. And so the bar exam is kind of the last protective wall that we have to make sure that incompetent folks don't go out there, take clients' money, and then do them a disservice. Roger Schechter is a professor of law at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Adam. When we come back, we'll resume our discussion of the bar exam. But first, here's a word about the Bloomberg Terminal. The world's financial decision makers connect on the Bloomberg Terminal, the buy side and the sell side, together, collaborating across markets and countries in real time, sharing ideas, negotiating trades, and forming an influential network of over 325,000 financial professionals that helps power global markets. Isn't it time you join them? Request a demo at Bloomberg.com professional. You're listening to the Uncommon Law Podcast from Bloomberg Industry Group. I'm Adam Allington. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the bar exam. What are you doing? Dutch says you've been here since 630. I thought I'd jumpstart the bar exam work. Good. No associates ever failed the bar exam, you know. Come on, I'll show you a new office. Wally Hudson, contracts. Here to help with the bar exam. Thanks, Wally. No associate of the firm has ever failed the bar exam. First day is a four-hour multiple choice on ethics. Look at the first six chapters. I'll see you Wednesday, 8.45. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. That was a clip of The Firm based on the book by John Grisham. Spoiler alert, Tom Cruise did pass the bar exam. In the wake of increased focus on issues of racism and diversity in the legal profession, change advocates say that far from being some kind of neutral benchmark, the bar exam actually perpetuates the legacy of racism in the legal industry. 
what it's really doing, and the numbers bear this out year after year after year, is it's denying admission to the bar to a lot of attorneys of color, to attorneys who are not native English speakers, and to people with disabilities. Joanna Miller is director of the Education Policy Center at the ACLU of New York. She also co-teaches a clinic on civil rights at NYU Law School. And this is a profession that desperately needs more diversity. And actually, Black students are graduating from higher-ranked law schools than white students and still not passing the bar at the same rates. So there's something wrong with that exam, not with the students. Joanna, earlier in the show, we talked a bit about how having the economic freedom to study full-time for the bar exam is a huge advantage, one that tends to benefit white test takers over students of color. But when it comes to the actual test itself, are there other biases that can get overlooked in these kinds of intelligence tests like the bar exam or the LSAT? So something that has been demonstrated over and over through a million papers and studies is you are going to do well on any given exam if your life experience is more like the life experience of the person who wrote the exam. And even as the law the law examiner's conference brings more diversity into writing the exam, they can't reflect every person's experience in every exam. And so there's always going to be an in crowd and an out crowd based on how much I'm like the person who wrote that question. Because especially in the law exam, even though they are quote unquote objective, you're being asked to use your judgment. That's the whole thing about being a lawyer. This is about training people to use their best judgment. And your judgment might not be the same as mine if your life has been wildly different than mine. So back before the bar exam, lawyers used to be trained based on an apprenticeship model. In fact, in some states, you can actually still do this. As anyone watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians may recall, that is what Kim Kardashian is trying to do. I did look into it, and according to the California bar, you can actually become a lawyer without going to law school by being an apprentice. That's insane that this is even possible. We've got to work for 18 hours a week out of our office. Um, I'm going to have to work with you for five hours each of those weeks. But for the vast majority of people, the path to becoming a lawyer starts with law school and ends with the bar. So are you in favor of doing away with the bar exam completely, or do you think that it's a matter of reforming and fixing the test? So I want there to be no bar exam. I think it's completely turned legal education on its head because you're learning how to take the bar. If that wasn't there, you could spend more time um, in skills building settings, in real world settings. You could be exposed to different areas of the law that are never going to be tested on a bar exam, but are much more useful for a 21st century lawyer. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, anti-racist lawyering. That's not something you're going to take in almost any law school because that's not tested anywhere. Um, There may be certain areas of the law where a standardized exam makes sense. So, for example, in IP law, those lawyers do take additional credentialing steps because they have to have different types of knowledge. But for this normal law grad who wants to hang out a shingle or even go to big law, graduating from a law school with some type of practicum requirement, a clinic, an internship, graduating from an accredited law school in good standing ought to really be enough to show that you're ready to be a lawyer. So another argument that I hear frequently, in addition to maintaining standards for attorneys, the bar exam also serves as a kind of back-end check on law schools. 
Do you buy that argument? And might there be other downstream benefits of the bar exam? The bar exam doesn't really stop law schools from admitting people who aren't qualified. Um, Law schools are under huge economic pressure no matter what. And so many law schools, especially if they're not really competitive for high rankings, which it's easy to not be competitive for those things. In fact, um, a lot of law schools that are associated with, with historically black colleges and universities are like completely out of the rankings. Um, and there's a lot of like economic reasons for that and like first generation um, law students and like really unfair inequitable reasons for that. So many law schools are not really competing for rankings. They're really trying to pay their bills and they may even be trying to, and I don't even mean that in a cynical way, they may be really trying to be a community law school where a lot of people who are interested in in studying law but maybe don't come from a traditional background can actually get in and learn something and perform that way. I know, for example, that a lot of schools that are lower in the rankings, they actually have pretty high bar passage rates on like second and third tries, but just low on the first try. And so for whatever reason, often because those students are working while they're studying, they just need more time to learn the bar exam. And so I don't think that the bar exam itself is actually providing any kind of limit on law schools and who they admit. Um, I do think it's limiting who becomes a lawyer at the end and who finishes law school with a mountain of debt and maybe then walks away from the profession, no matter how much potential they had to be a lawyer because they just can't get over that last hurdle. So my last question for you, Joanna, is last January, the National Conference of Bar Examiners approved reforms to the test that will be phased in over four to five years. These include things like adopting an integrated approach to better evaluate critical thinking and legal skills, as well as changes to certain testing procedures meant to improve accessibility and fairness for underrepresented test takers. At the local level, a number of states, including California, have lowered cut scores to help increase pass rates for minorities. Would any of these reforms go far enough for you to say we should keep the bar exam? Look, anything that can cut down the financial and psychological burden to create more access for people who are not traditional law students is going to be better for our profession. Um, it's just so outdated to have a profession that's so mismatched from our clientele. And actually, in fact, to not even offer our services at all to so many people because we just don't have connections to to every community. Anything that can make that more accessible is going to be better. And so that's what we want to see. We think that a performance-based evaluation of who can be a lawyer is more equitable, but also is going to get you probably better lawyers. Joanna Miller is Director of Education Policy at the ACLU of New York. Joanna, it was nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that is where we're going to leave the discussion for today. In our next episode, we'll resume our look into the bar exam by delving deeper into the idea of diploma privilege. We'll speak with Dan Takaji, the dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School, Wisconsin, as you recall, is the only state that currently offers across-the-board diploma privilege. One other programming note, in the week since this episode was produced, Alexis Alzada, the law grad who you heard from at the top of the program, has gotten her test scores back from the Georgia Bar, and she passed. So congratulations, Alexis. One other note, 
An earlier version of this episode stated that test takers had 45 seconds per question on the multi-state portion of the bar exam. That was incorrect. If you divide the 200 multiple choice questions on the MBE by the total time of six hours, that equals roughly one minute and 45 seconds per question. As always, if you like this kind of content, please do me a solid and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It's a big help. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Sam Skolnick. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts and also handled editing for this episode. Until next week, thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.